186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Sunday afternoon session of the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. With speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church, music for this session is provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, second counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Our dear brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the concluding session of the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our beloved prophet, President Thomas Monson, who presides at the conference, has asked that I conduct this session. We extend our greetings to members of the Church and friends everywhere in this global and worldwide conference who are participating in these proceedings by radio, television, the Internet, or satellite transmission. The music for this session will be by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy, with Linda Margetz at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. The invocation will then be offered by Elder C. Scott Grow of the Seventy.
Our Father in heaven, with humble hearts and with gratitude, we approach thee now as we begin this final session of General Conference. We're grateful for thy spirit that has been poured out in abundance upon us in these previous sessions. We thank thee for the restoration of the gospel and for the Church of Jesus Christ in these latter days through the prophet Joseph Smith. We thank thee for the keys of the kingdom of God that have been restored to the earth for the priesthood power and authority that allows us to enter into the ordinances of exaltation and enter into sacred covenants with thee, especially in thy holy temples. We rejoice today in the announcement of four new temples. We thank thee for living apostles and prophets to guide us in these latter days. We pray a special blessing to be poured out upon each of them and sustain them in their ministries, and especially our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, whom we love. We thank thee for the life and mission and ministry of thy Son, for his atoning sacrifice, and for his glorious resurrection. Now, Father, as we begin this final session, we pray that thou wilt pour out thy Spirit upon each of us, those in the choir, those who will speak to us, and each one of us who will hear here in this sacred hall and throughout the world. Bless us with increased faith in thy Son, Jesus Christ, and in thee, and increase our determination to seek to know thy will, and with the increased ability to do thy will. From this day forward, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The choir will now favor us with, For I am called by thy name. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Robert D. Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Gary W. Gong of the Presidency of the Seventy. Elder Patrick Cairn of the Seventy will then address us.
My beloved brothers and sisters, I speak today as a servant of the Lord and also as a great-grandfather. To you and to my beloved posterity, I teach and bear testimony of the remarkable gift of the Holy Ghost. I begin by acknowledging the light of Christ, which is given to every man and woman that cometh into the world. All of us benefit from this holy light. It is, and all through, and it is, it is in all things and through all things, and allows us to distinguish right from wrong. But the Holy Ghost is different than the light of Christ. He is the third member of the Godhead, a distinct personage of spirit with sacred responsibilities and one in purpose with the Father and the Son. As members of the Church, we may experience the companionship of the Holy Ghost continually. Through the restored priesthood of God, we are baptized by immersion for the remission of our sins, then confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this ordinance, we are given the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands of the priesthood, and thereafter we can receive and retain the companionship of the Holy Ghost by always remembering the Savior, keeping His commandments, repenting of our sins, and worthily partaking of the sacrament on the Sabbath day. The Holy Ghost provides personal revelation to help us make major life decisions about such things as education, missions, careers, marriage, children, where we will live with our families, and so on. In these matters, Heavenly Father expects us to use our agency, study the situation out in our minds according to gospel principles, and bring a decision to Him in prayer. Personal revelation is essential, but is only one part of the work of the Holy Ghost. As the scriptures attest, the Holy Ghost also testifies of the Savior and God the Father. He teaches us the peaceable things of the kingdom and causes us to abound in hope. He leadeth us to do good and to judge righteously. He gives to every man and woman a spiritual gift that all may be profited thereby. He giveth us knowledge and bring things all to our remembrance. Through the Holy Ghost, we may be sanctified and receive a remission of our sins. He is the Comforter, the same who was promised unto the Savior's disciples. I remember all of us. I might remind all of us that the Holy Ghost is not given to control us. Some of us unwisely seek the Holy Ghost's direction on every minor decision in our life. 
This trivializes his sacred role. The Holy Ghost honors the principle of agency. He speaks out to our minds and our hearts gently about many matters of consequence. Each of us may feel the influence of the Holy Ghost differently. His promptings will be felt in different degrees of intensity according to our individual needs and circumstances. In these latter days, we affirm that only the prophet may receive revelation through the Holy Ghost for the entire Church. Some forget this, as when Aaron and Miriam tried to convince Moses to agree with them, but the Lord taught them and us. He said, If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. Close quote. Sometimes the adversary tempts us with false ideas that we may confuse with the Holy Ghost. I testify that faithfulness in obeying the commandments and keeping our covenants will protect us from being deceived. Through the Holy Ghost, we'll be able to discern those false prophets who teach for the doctrine and the commandments of men. As we receive the Holy Ghost for ourselves, it is wise to remember that we cannot receive revelation for ourselves or for others, I mean. I know of a young man who told a young woman, I've had a dream. You're to be my wife. (laughs) You got it. The young woman pondered that statement and then replied and responded, When I have the same dream, I'll come and talk to you. (laughs) All of us may be tempted to let our personal desires overcome the guidance of the Holy Ghost. The Prophet Joseph Smith pled with Heavenly Father for permission to lend the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon to Martin Harris. Joseph thought it was a good idea, but the Holy Ghost did not give him confirming feelings. Eventually, Joseph insisted and was told by the Holy Ghost it would be all right if he desired. Eventually, Joseph lent the papers anyway, and Martin Smith, Martin Harris lost them. For a season, the Lord withdrew the prophet's gift to translate, and he learned a painful but valuable lesson that shaped the remainder of his service. The Holy Ghost is central to the Restoration. Regarding his boyhood reading of James 1 and 5, the prophet Joseph recounted, Never did any passage of the Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. The power described by Holy Ghost, by Joseph Smith, was the influence of the Holy Ghost. As a result, Joseph went into a grove of trees near his home, 
meltdown to ask of God. The first vision then followed was truly momentous and magnificent, but the path to the in-person visitation with the Father and the Son began with the promptings from the Holy Ghost to pray. The revealed truths of the restored gospel came through the pattern of seeking and prayer, then receiving and following the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Consider these examples, translating the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the priesthood and its ordinances, beginning with baptism and the organization of the Church, to name a few. I testify that today, revelation from the Lord to the First Presidency and the Twelve comes according to these same sacred patterns. These are the same sacred patterns that allow personal revelation. We pay tribute to all who have followed the Holy Ghost to receive the restored gospel, beginning with Joseph Smith's own family members. When young Joseph told his father about Moroni's visit, his father received a confirming witness for himself. Immediately, Joseph was released from his farm responsibilities and encouraged to follow the angel's direction. As parents and leaders, let us do likewise. Let us encourage our children and others to follow the direction of the Holy Ghost. In doing so, let us follow the example of the Holy Ghost ourselves, leading through gentleness, meekness, kindness, long-suffering, and love unfeigned. The Holy Ghost is a member, a medium for God's work. In families and throughout the Church, with that understanding, may I share a few personal examples of the Holy Ghost in my own life and Church service. I offer them as a personal witness that the Holy Ghost blesses us all. Many years ago, Sister Hales and I planned to host some of my work associates at a special dinner at my home, at our home. In my way home from the office, I had an impression to stop at the house of a widow whom I hope taught. When I knocked on the sister's door, she said, I have been praying for you to come. Where did that impression come from? The Holy Ghost. Once following a serious illness, I presided at a state conference. To conserve my energy, I planned to leave the chapel immediately after the priesthood leadership session. However, following the benediction, I was inspired to shake hands. In fact, the Holy Ghost said to me, Where are you going? I was inspired to shake hands with everyone as they left the room. As one young elder stepped forward, I was prompted to give him this special message. He was looking down, and I waited for his eyes to come up and meet mine, and I was able to say, Pray to the Heavenly Father. Listen to the Holy Ghost. Follow the promptings you are given, and all will be well in your life. End of quote. Later, the stake president told me 
how the young man had just returned early from his mission. Based on a clear impression, the state president promised the young man's father that if he brought his son to the priesthood meeting, Elder Hales would speak to him. Why did I stop and shake everybody's hand? Why did I pause to talk to this special young man? What was the source of my counsel? It's simple. The Holy Ghost. In early 2005, I was guided to prepare a conference message about senior missionary couples. Following the conference, a brother recounted, As we listened to the conference, immediately the Spirit of the Lord touched my very soul. There was no mistake the message was for me and for my sweetheart. We were to serve a mission, and the time was now. When I looked at my wife, I realized that she had received received the very same impression from the Spirit. End of quote. What had brought this strong, simultaneous response? The Holy Ghost. To my own posterity, and all within the sound of my voice, I offer my testimony of the personal revelation and constant flow of daily guidance and caution, encouragement, strength, spiritual cleansing, comfort, and peace that have come to our family through the Holy Ghost. Through the Holy Ghost we experience the multitude of His tender mercies and miracles that do not cease. I bear my special witness that the Savior lives. I express my love and gratitude to Heavenly Father for the gift of the Holy Ghost, through which reveals His will and sustains us in our life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Dear brothers and sisters, when I served in Asia, people sometimes asked, Elder Gong, how many people live in the Asia area of the Church? I said, half the world's population, 3.6 billion people. Someone asked, is it hard to remember all their names? (laughs) Remembering and forgetting are part of everyday life. For example, once after looking everywhere for her new mobile phone, my wife finally decided to call it from another phone. When she heard her phone ring, my wife thought, who could be calling me? I haven't given that number to anyone. (laughs) Remembering and forgetting are also part of our eternal journey. 
Time, agency, and memory help us learn, grow, and increase in faith. In the words of a favorite hymn, we'll sing all hail to Jesus' name and praise and honor give. Ye saints, partake and testify, ye do remember him. Each week in partaking of the sacrament, we covenant to always remember him. Drawing on a few of the more than 400 scripture references to the word remember, here are six ways we can always remember him. First, we can always remember him by having confidence in his covenants, promises, and assurances. The Lord remembers his everlasting covenants. From Adam's time to the day Adam's posterity shall embrace the truth and look upward. Then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. The Lord remembers his promises, including promises to gather scattered Israel through the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, and promises given to every member and missionary who remembers the worth of souls. The Lord remembers and assures nations and peoples. In these days of motion and commotion, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, who guides the future as he has the past. In perilous times, we remember that it is not the word of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. Second, we can always remember him by gratefully acknowledging his hand throughout our lives. The Lord's hand is often clearest in our lives in hindsight. As Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it, life must be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. My dear mother recently celebrated her 90th birthday. She gratefully testified of God's blessing at each major junction in her life. Family histories, family traditions, and family ties help us save a remembrance of things past while providing future patterns and hope. Priesthood lines of authority and patriarchal blessings witness God's hand across generations. Have you ever thought of yourself as your own living book of remembrance, reflecting what and how you choose to remember? For example, when I was younger, I really wanted to play school basketball. I practiced and practiced. One day, the coach pointed to our six-foot forward all-state center and our six-foot two all-star forward and said to me, I can put you on the team, but you'll likely never play. I remember how kindly he then encouraged, why not try out for soccer? You'd be good. My family cheered when I scored my first goal. We can remember those who give us a chance and a second chance with honesty, kindness, patience, and encouragement. And we can become someone others remember when they most needed help, gratefully remembering the assistance of others and the Spirit's guiding influence is a way we remember him. It's a way we count our many blessings and see what God hath done. Third, we can always remember him by trusting when the Lord assures us, He who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. When we fully repent, including by confessing and forsaking our sins, we ask with Enos, as our guilt is swept away, Lord, how is it done? And hear the answer, because of thy faith in Christ and his invitation to put me in remembrance. 
Once we repent and priesthood leaders declare us worthy, we need not continue to confess and confess these past sins. To be worthy does not mean to be perfect. His plan of happiness invites us to be humbly at peace on our life's journey to someday become perfected in Christ, not constantly worried, frustrated, or unhappy in our imperfections today. Remember, He knows all the things we don't want anyone else to know about us and loves us still. Sometimes life tests our trust in Christ's mercy, justice, and judgment, and in his liberating invitation to allow his atonement to heal us as we forgive others and ourselves. A young woman in another country applied to work as a journalist, but the official who assigned jobs was merciless. He said to her, With my signature, I guarantee you will not become a journalist, but will dig sewers. Imagine being the only woman digging sewers in a gang of men. Years later, this woman became an official. One day, a man came in needing her signature for a job. She asked, Do you remember me? He did not. She said, You do not remember me, but I remember you. With your signature, you guaranteed I never became a journalist. With your signature, you sent me to dig sewers, the only woman in a gang of men. She told me, I feel I should treat that man better than he treated me, but I do not have that strength. Sometimes that strength is not within us, but it can be found in remembering the atonement of our Savior Jesus Christ. When trust is betrayed, dreams broken, hearts shattered and then broken again, when we want justice and need mercy, when our fists clench and our tears flow, when we need to know what to hold on to and what to let go of, we can always remember him. Life is not as cruel as it can sometimes seem. His infinite compassion can help us find our way, truth, and life. When we remember his words and example, We will not give or take offense. My friend's father worked as a mechanic. His honest labor showed even in his carefully washed hands. One day, someone at a temple told my friend's father he should clean his hands before serving in the temple. Instead of being offended, this good man began to scrub the family dishes by hand with extra soapy water before attending the temple. He exemplifies those who ascend until the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place with the cleanest of hands and the purest of hearts. If we have unkind feelings, grudges, or resentments, or if we have cause to ask forgiveness of others, now is the time to do so. Fourth, he invites us to remember that he always welcomes us home. We learn by asking and searching But please do not cease exploration until you arrive, in the words of T.S. Eliot, quote, where you started and know the place for the first time. When you are ready, please open your heart to the Book of Mormon again for the first time. Please pray with real intent again for the first time. Trust that early or faint memory. Let it enlarge your faith. With God, there is no point of no return. 
prophets ancient and modern implore us not to let human foibles, faults, or weaknesses, others or our own, cause us to miss the true covenants and redeeming power in his restored gospel. This is especially important in a church where we each grow through our imperfect participation. The prophet Joseph said, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. Fifth, we can always remember him on the Sabbath through the sacrament. At the end of his mortal ministry and the beginning of his resurrected ministry, both times, our Savior took bread and wine and asked that we remember his body and blood. For as oft as ye do this, you will remember this hour that I was with you. In the ordinance of the sacrament, we witness unto God the Father that we are willing to take upon us the name of his Son and always remember him and keep his commandments, which he has given us, that we may always have his Spirit to be with us. As Amulek teaches, we remember him when we pray over our fields, our flocks, and our households, and when we remember the needy, the naked, the sick, and the afflicted. Finally, six, our Savior invites us to always remember him as he always remembers us. In the new world, our resurrected Savior invited those present to come, one by one, to thrust their hands into his side and to feel the prints in his hands and in his feet. The scriptures describe resurrection as every limb and joint shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame, and even a hair of the head shall not be lost. That being so, please consider how it is that our Savior's perfect resurrected body still bears the wounds in his side and the nail prints in his hands and feet. At times in history, mortal men have been executed by crucifixion, but only our Savior Jesus Christ embraces us, still carrying the marks of his pure love. Only he fulfills the prophecy of being lifted up upon the cross that he might draw each of us by name to him. Our Savior declares, Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. He testifies, I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. End quote. I humbly testify and pray that we will always remember him in all times, all things, and all places we may be in. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. There are an estimated 60 million refugees in the world today, 
which means that one in every 122 humans has been forced to flee their homes. And half of these are children. It's shocking to consider the numbers involved and to reflect on what this means in each individual life. My current assignment is in Europe, where one and a quarter million of these refugees have arrived over the last year from war-torn parts of the Middle East and Africa. We see many of them coming with only the clothes they are wearing and what they can carry in one small bag. A large proportion of them are well-educated, and all have had to abandon homes, schools, and jobs. Under the direction of the First Presidency, the Church is working with 75 organizations in 17 European countries. These organizations range from large international institutions to small community initiatives, from government agencies to faith-based and secular charities. We're fortunate to partner with and learn from others who have been working with refugees around the world for many years. As members of the Church, as a people, we don't have to look back far in our history to reflect on times when we were refugees, violently driven from homes and farms over and over again. Last weekend, in speaking of refugees, Sister Linda Burton asked the women of the Church to consider what if their story were my story? Their story is our story not that many years ago. There are highly charged arguments in governments and across society regarding what is the definition of a refugee and what should be done to assist them. These thoughts are not intended in any way to form part of that heated discussion, nor to comment on anyone's immigration policy, but rather to focus on the people who have, had, who have been driven from their homes and their countries by wars that they had no hand in starting. The Saviour knows how it feels to be a refugee. He was one. As a child, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt to escape the murderous swords of Herod. And at various points in his ministry, he found himself threatened and his life in danger, ultimately submitting to the designs of evil men who had plotted his death. Perhaps then, it is all the more remarkable to us that he repeatedly taught us to love one another, to love as he loves, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Truly pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this— to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to look to the poor and the needy and administer to their relief that they shall not suffer. It's been inspiring to witness what church members from around the world have generously donated to help these individuals and families who have lost so much. Across Europe specifically, I have seen members of the Church who have experienced a joyful awakening and enriching of the soul as they have responded to that deep, innate desire to reach out and serve those in such extreme need around them. The Church has provided shelter and medical care. Stakes and missions have assembled many thousands of hygiene kits. Other stakes have provided food, water, clothing, 
waterproof coats, bicycles, books, backpacks, reading glasses, and much more. Individuals from Scotland to Sicily have stepped in to every conceivable role. Doctors and nurses have volunteered their services at the point where refugees arrive soaked and chilled and often traumatized from their water crossings. As refugees begin the resettlement process, local members are helping them learn the language of their host country, while others are lifting the spirits of both children and parents by providing providing toys, art supplies, music, and play. Some are taking donated yarn, knitting needles, and crochet hooks and teaching these skills to local refugees, old and young. Seasoned members of the church who have given years of service and leadership attest to the fact that ministering to these people so immediately in need has provided the richest, most fulfilling experience in their service so far. The reality of these situations must be seen to be believed. In winter, I met, amongst many others, a pregnant woman from Syria in a refugee transit camp, desperately seeking assurance that she would not need to deliver her baby on the cold floor of the vast hall where she was housed. Back in Syria, she had been a university professor. And in Greece, I spoke with a family, still wet, shivering and frightened from their crossing in a small rubber boat from Turkey. After looking into their eyes and hearing their stories, both of the terror they had fled and of their perilous journey to find refuge, I will never be the same. Extending care and aid are a vast range of dedicated relief workers, many of them volunteers. I saw in action a member of the church who, for many months, worked through the night, providing for the most immediate needs of those arriving from Turkey into Greece. Among countless other endeavors, she administered first aid to those in most critical medical need. She saw that the women and children traveling alone were cared for. She held those who had been bereaved along the way and did her best to allocate limited resources to limitless need. She, as so many like her, has been a literal ministering angel whose deeds are not forgotten by those she cared for, nor by the Lord on whose errand she was. All who have given of themselves to relieve the suffering around them are much like the people of Alma. And thus, in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send away any who were naked, or that were hungry, or that were athirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished. They were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. We must be careful that the news of the refugees' plight does not become commonplace when the initial shock wears off and yet the wars continue and the families keep coming. Millions of refugees worldwide whose stories no longer make the news are still in desperate need of help. If you are asking, what can I do? 
Let us first remember that we should not serve at the expense of families and other responsibilities, nor should we expect our leaders to organize projects for us. But as youth, men, women, and families, we can join in this great humanitarian endeavor. In response to the invitation from the First Presidency to participate in Christ-like service to refugees worldwide, the General Presidencies of the Relief Society, Young Women and Primary have organized a relief effort entitled, I Was a Stranger. Sister Burton introduced this to the women of the Church last weekend in the General Women's Session. There are multiple helpful ideas, resources, and suggestions for service on iwasastranger.lds.org. Begin on your knees in prayer. Then think in terms of doing something close to home, in your own community, where you will find people who need help in adapting to their new circumstances. The ultimate aim in their is their rehabilitation to an industrious and self-reliant life. The possibilities for us to lend a hand and be a friend are endless. You might help resettle refugees, learn their host country language, update their work skills, or practice job interviewing. You could offer to mentor a family or a single mother as they transition to an unfamiliar culture, even with something as simple as accompanying them to the grocery store or to school. Some wards and stakes have existing, trusted organizations to partner with, and according to your circumstances, you can give to the Church's extraordinary humanitarian effort. Additionally, each one of us can increase our awareness of world events that drive these families from their homes. We must take a stand against intolerance and advocate respect and understanding across cultures and traditions. Meeting refugee families and hearing their stories with your own ears and not from a screen or newspaper will change you. Real friendships will develop and will foster compassion and successful integration. The Lord has instructed us that the stakes of Zion are to be a defense and a refuge from the storm. We have found refuge. Let us come out from our safe places and share with them from our abundance hope for a brighter future, faith in God and in our fellow man, and love that sees beyond cultural and ideological differences to the glorious truth that we are all children of our Father in heaven. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. Being a refugee may be a defining moment in the lives of those who are refugees, but being a refugee does not define them. Like countless thousands before them, this will be a period, we hope a short period, in their lives. Some of them will go on to be Nobel laureates, public servants, physicians, scientists, musicians, artists, religious leaders, and and contributors in other fields. Indeed, many of them were these things before they lost everything. This moment does not define them, but our response will help define us. Verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, brethren. On a signal from the conductor, the congregation will stand and join in singing with the choir, Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Ella Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by elders Kent F. Richards and Paul V. Johnson of the Seventy. The choir will then sing, The Day Dawn is Breaking. Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale. This is the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Father's plan of salvation 
for the eternal progress of his children. That plan, explained in modern revelation, helps us understand many things we face in mortality. My message focuses on the essential role of opposition in that plan. The purpose of mortal life for the children of God is to provide the experiences needed to progress toward perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny as an heir of eternal life. As President Monson taught us so powerfully this morning, we progress by making choices by which we are tested to show that we will keep God's commandments. To be tested, we must have the agency to choose between alternatives. To provide alternatives on which to exercise our agency, we must have opposition. The rest of the plan is also essential. When we make wrong choices, as we inevitably will, we are soiled by sin and must be cleansed to proceed toward our eternal destiny. The Father's plan provides the way to do this, the way to satisfy the eternal demands of justice. A Savior pays the price to redeem us from our sins. That Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Eternal Father, whose atoning sacrifice, whose suffering, pays the price for our sins if we will repent of them. One of the best explanations of the planned role of opposition is in the Book of Mormon, in Lehi's teachings to his son Jacob. It must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. As a result, Lehi continued, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. End of quote. Similarly, in modern Revelation, the Lord declares, It must needs be that the devils should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves. End of quote. Opposition was necessary in the Garden of Eden. If Adam and Eve had not made the choice that introduced mortality, Lehi taught, they would have remained in a state of innocence, doing no good, for they knew no sin. From the beginning, agency and opposition were central to the Father's plan and to Satan's rebellion against it. As the Lord revealed to Moses, in the council of heaven, Satan sought to destroy the agency of man. That destruction was inherent in the terms of Satan's offer. He came before the Father and said, Behold, here am I, send me, I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, that not one soul shall be lost, and surely I will do it. 
Wherefore give me thine honor. Thus Satan proposed to carry out the Father's plan in a way that would prevent the accomplishment of the Father's purpose and give Satan his glory. Satan's proposal would have ensured perfect equality. It would redeem all mankind that not one soul would be lost. There would be no agency or choice by anyone and therefore no need for opposition. There would be no test, no failure, and no success. There would be no growth to attain the purpose the Father desired for his children. The scriptures record that Satan's opposition resulted in a war in heaven, in which two-thirds of the children of God earned the right to experience mortal life by choosing the Father's plan and rejecting Satan's rebellion. Satan's purpose was to give himself the Father's honor and power. Wherefore, the Father said, Because that Satan rebelled against me, I caused that he should be cast down with all the spirits who had exercised their agency to follow him. Cast down as unembodied spirits in mortality, Satan and his followers tempt and seek to deceive and captivate the children of God. So it is that the evil one, who opposed and sought to destroy the Father's plan, actually facilitated it, because it is opposition that enables choice, and it is the opportunity of making the right choices that leads to the growth that is the purpose of the Father's plan. Significantly, the temptation to sin is not the only kind of opposition in mortality. Father Lehi taught that if the fall had not taken place, Adam and Eve would have remained in a state